Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, June 13th, 2018. Light episode today. Gonna lay you the lecture that I recently delivered in Minot, North Dakota. Yeah, the Christ Old Fast uh, mini conference they had there. Exegeted Psalm 69. It's an imprecatory psalm. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward, is far from true, far from accurate, far from what God's Word says. And there's just a whole lot of deceiving going on out there. People teaching for shameful gain things they ought not to teach, and, you know, this, all of that stuff. So let's talk about what we're going to do today. Today's our uh, Wednesday. Normally we do our light episode. And uh, so, like I said, we will be playing my recent lecture that I delivered on Psalm 69, which is an imprecatory psalm. If you're not sure what the imprecatory psalms are, uh, generally those are (laughs) ones that seem to be prayed against somebody. And when you look at the imprecatory psalms, they can be a wee bit on the uh, whoa side. Yeah, you know, you got to do it that way too, by the way. You got to, whoa, <laughs> did the Bible really say? Yeah, it really did. It said, that. what? <laughs> yeah, the imprecatory psalms make a lot of people nervous. No, yeah, that, you have to say it that way too. And uh, and so uh, when uh, they, they asked if I would uh, come and actually be willing to teach on one of the psalms, I said, absolutely. They said, so which one would you like to pick? <laughs> And I said, I want to do Psalm 69. They went, what? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. they were, you know, it, 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 you know it's so funny. Even this, uh, the Christ Old Fast people were like, oh, wow, this is, uh, hmm, okay. We're going to see how this goes. But we landed on our feet. And the reason why is because, <laughs> yeah, the, the text exegetes itself. And if you keep Christ at the center of it, you can't go wrong. But it's very fascinating because the text, uh, Psalm uh, 69, really 
is about the slander and the the lies of the devil those are the the agents of him and you can even see Christ and the slander brought against him in this in this text and so uh, grab something to uh, write with grab your bible open up to psalm 69 let's get to it here's rose bros ramblings on psalm 69 here we go i have the distinction the distinction of being able to work with Psalm 69, if you look on a list of different types of psalms, you'll note that Psalm 69 shows up as an imprecatory psalm. And when we think of imprecatory psalms, when we are cranky or somebody has really gotten under our skin, we might jokingly, maybe half-jokingly, say something like, I'm going to pray an imprecatory psalm against you. I'm feeling imprecatory. But then again, when we look at this body of work, the imprecatory psalms, we have a problem. And the problem is this. How do we reconcile these prayers that we are taught to pray in the imprecatory psalms? We are told by Christ himself to pray for our enemies. Is this what Jesus meant when he said to pray for our enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. And so, rather than crack open every one of the imprecatory psalms, I would say this. Each of these psalms is a gem that you'll need to lift out of the scriptures, and we'll try to do some justice to this psalm today. But each of these imprecatory psalms cannot be understood properly apart from Christ, cannot be understood properly apart from law and gospel, And it will require you to take it out, hold it in the light, look at it from different angles, put it down for a while, think about it, and then come back and pick it up again and look at it again. These are psalms designed for us to wrestle with. And I think that's really my goal as we work through Psalm 69 together is to at least give you a place to start in how do you wrestle with a psalm of this nature. And so think of it this way. Many psalms have a theme. They have a central thought that they are working from. This one is no different than that. And I would posit these ideas as we take a look at this psalm, that these are psalms that invite us to understand the great mystery of what Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, where he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And listen to these words. Provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Scripture makes it clear that when we as Christians suffer as Christians, that in some very real and mysterious way, we are suffering with Christ. It's a strange concept. And so this Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm, but it's also a psalm in which we participate. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John chapter 15 starting at verse 18, says, If the world hates you, 
know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own and beware of churches that the world loves. Is the best way I can put it. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so let me ask you this question. When we review the Ten Commandments, go back to your small catechism. When you go back to your small catechism, how many commandments are there against lying? Don't be quick to answer. How many commandments are there against lying? There's two. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall not bear witness against, false witness against your neighbor. There are two commandments against lying. Lying that takes place against God by making promises for God that he never made or taking his word and twisting and mangling it. And then there's also the slander of neighbor. And I would argue that these two are intimately linked together. And you'll see that as we kind of unpack and let Scripture help us understand this psalm. Think of it this way. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 22, we read an account where Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And here's what the text says. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. I'm sure this was quite the thing to see. I mean, imagine this, a demon-oppressed man who's blind and all of a sudden he can see. You can almost hear the joy coming from this man, although he's never, his reaction is never mentioned. But the reaction of the people is mentioned. And all the people they, who saw this, they were amazed. And some of them said, can this be the son of David? But keep this in mind, when Jesus shows up, in Israel, born of the Virgin Mary. In that time, there was a group of people who had arisen, a pe group of people called the Pharisees. And many people think that Pharisees are guys who are like super into good theology, that they're really great theologians, that their doctrine is impeccable. I'm sorry, but that is just not true. The Pharisees are self-righteous heretics. Over and again, when you read in the Gospels about the Pharisees, these are men who claim to worship the God of Israel. They've created their own man-made doctrines, their own man-made traditions, and there's the God they claim to worship standing in their midst, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons. And here's their reaction. But when the Pharisees heard about this demon-oppressed man who received back to his sight and was now speaking, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. What is that? What kind of lie is this? A religious lie. Did they really worship the God of Israel? 
Of course they didn't. How could they? There was their God who had just cast out a demon and they flat out slandered him. It's like going on social media. You think Trump had it bad. Sorry. That's a five-letter word, right? Okay. You think Trump has it bad? They said of Jesus, the kindest and most loving and forgiving man who ever walked this earth. The man who sought out sinners to forgive them. The man who anybody who would come to him in need of a physical healing, he would heal. The one who spoke good news to us, who was setting the captives free. Upon casting out a demon, he was accused of engaging in sorcery and witchcraft. And that the reason he was doing what he was doing is because he's in league with the devil. Put that one on Facebook. Yeah. Before there was social media, there were Pharisees who were lying in the open. You get the idea here. But see, this is the nature of the devil. And this is really what's at the heart of Psalm 69. The heart of Psalm 69 is the suffering that one experiences through the slanderous lies of those who put on religious pretenses. Let's get into it, and we'll exegete a little bit more of it. Psalm 69, verse 1. The psalmist writes, Save me, O God! You can hear it. You can hear it. The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Remember the anxiety that you felt when your parents or your dad taught you how to swim and you were afraid of the deep end? And the reason you were afraid of the deep end is because your feet could never touch it. That was the scariest thing ever. This is that anxiety, that panic attack that comes when you realize I'm in deep trouble here. I'm in over my head. The water's coming over me. I've got no foothold here. I'm going to go under. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Did Jesus ever give anyone cause to hate him? This is ultimately understood first through him and us in him participating in his sufferings. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done, they're not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Oh Lord, God of hosts. Apply this little portion of the prayer then to what Jesus was experiencing. 
He was healing people. He was forgiving them, casting out demons. And there were some who were thinking, this is the Messiah. The Pharisees come straight in and say, no, he's demon-possessed. And there were some who were saying, well, they're the Pharisees. They're the heads of the synagogues. They got to know, so they're right. And what's happening is, is that God's name is being besmirched. And people who are hoping in God now are wobbly in their faith. Wobbly. And so here's the prayer. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. And see, that's the kind of terrible thing, is that when somebody comes at you with slander, lies, who airs your dirty laundry, even laundry that they've planted in your laundry basket, for the world to see is that it does cause those who are weak to wonder if they were smart at all to listen to you raving about the love of Christ. And yet the psalmist says, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. And it's because of you, your sake, that dishonor has covered my face. And see, that's the truth of the matter. How many of you have ever had the experience of posting something on Facebook positive about Jesus? Or something that was true because Scripture says it's true, but the world vehemently denies? Have you ever been blocked? Ever been called out on the carpet? Get your head out of the first century. This is the 21st century. Don't be such a rube. Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. He doesn't forgive sins. Who do you think you are? Shut up and toe the line or we're going to report you. If that's happened to you, you already know what it's like to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Or have you ever had your name slandered? It's always fascinating to me to see men that I know who preach the gospel have lies spread about them on social media. People telling their life stories and knowing the truth and knowing that the lies that are being spread are utter slander. And it's always in the name of God. It's always fascinating to me. In the name of God, we've got to warn you, that guy's a sinner. You think? Really? I'm shocked. Yeah, he's a sinner, but the things you're saying about him, those are not his sins. And I know it. It's always fascinating and quite surreal. So they know this. It's for the sake of Christ that many have borne reproach and have been slandered because of the great host of people in the name of God who have surrounded you and Christ to basically discredit the gospel through slander. And the result of this, the psalmist says, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Now, to help us further understand this, I found Luther's exposition of this psalm to be quite helpful. Martin Luther warns that 
this psalm is pointing to the dangers of what he calls half-Christians. We'll talk about this in a minute. That half-Christians pose to this church, especially during times of prosperity. Always be on your guard. The worst thing that can happen to the church is not that some tyrant arises, that some raving, maniacal person gets into the White House and starts persecuting Christians. That's actually the easiest type of persecution to experience. But for Christians, the worst of times is always when we are experiencing prosperity and we do not have an actual enemy coming after us. Because then what happens is we eat our own. Very dangerous times. And so Martin Luther warns and uses the psalm to warn us against the lukewarm. Now, that is a highly charged phrase, the lukewarm. And I'm going to challenge some of you, when you hear that word lukewarm, or phrase lukewarm, it's probably not what you've been taught it meant. Let me explain. Years and years ago, I attended a non-denominational private Christian school, pretty much run by the Nazarenes. And if you know anything about the Nazarenes, they're a wee bit uptight. Okay? And I'm being kind. And I was told that being lukewarm meant you can't be a follower of Jesus and a true Christian and listen to Van Halen. This is what I was told. You cannot be a true follower of Christ and, well, have wine with your steak. Which, by the way, it's a waste of a steak if you don't have a good red wine with it. I'm just saying. I've been told that you cannot be a good, on fire for the Lord Christian and dance. I don't know where you get these ideas. But think of like the movie Footloose. That pastor was like my pastor. And so many of us, when we hear the word or the phrase lukewarm, we think of it in those terms. You know, I can't be a true Christian and then fill in the blank. That's not what it means to be lukewarm. That is not what it means at all. To be lukewarm is to hear the gospel and deny its power. To be lukewarm is to have a veneer of Christianity and may remain in your self-righteousness. Because, you see, the self-righteous don't need a bloodied, crucified, flogged, scourged Jesus. They're not looking for that guy. They're looking for somebody who will come along in a Jesus suit and say, you know, you're not all that bad. You know, you're doing pretty well. There's a few things we might need to improve here, so let's make a few New Year's resolutions. And we'll see if we can get you to a better level of excellence. That's what it means to be lukewarm. In fact, we see this in Revelation 3. Read Revelation 3 in these, in, through that lens and you'll see it. Where Christ writes to the church of Laodicea through his instrument, the Apostle John. And to the church of Laodicea, Christ says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Oh, would that you were either cold or hot. You see, they're half Christians. They've heard the gospel. They've heard about Jesus. And they're, meh. Yeah, that Jesus guy, he's okay. 
The forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's, if it works for you, that's fine, I guess. But I don't really need that. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything, including a dead Jesus. Not really realizing that you are, and listen to what Jesus says, that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, that you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You see, to be lukewarm is to be self-righteous. To be on fire is to recognize that you are a sinner and that you have nothing to offer God. That you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But Jesus isn't. He's righteous. He's glorious. He's rich. He has the ability to give sight to the blind. And he's promised to clothe us in his righteousness. And so Jesus counsels them, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. And you'll note, zealous here, is zealous in confessing your need for a Savior. It has nothing to do with Van Halen. Thank God. And see, this is what we're dealing with then in Psalm 69. The half-Christians, the lukewarm, the smug, the self-righteous, the rich, those who are offended that Christ would forgive and heal those who are so despised. Another way to think of it, in Jude's epistle, Jude wanted to talk about the great salvation that we have in Christ. However, he felt it necessary to warn about false teachers. And so Jude writes in verse 10, these people, these false teachers, they blaspheme all that they don't understand. Like, the way the Pharisees blasphemed Christ. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And he says, woe to them. They walk in the way of Cain. And there's your key here. Cain. Hmm, Cain. You need to remember something about that fellow. What was Cain's sin? Well, It resulted in him killing his brother. But what was his sin? You see, the way the story opens up in Genesis 4 is that Cain and his brother Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord. Now, everybody gets hung up on the type of sacrifice. Abel brings, well, a sacrificial sheep, a sacrificial lamb. Good sacrifice. Well, Cain was a farmer, and so he brought some corn and potatoes and stuff like that. Let me ask you this. and Do we see anywhere in the Old Testament condemnation for those who bring grain offerings? None whatsoever. But the book of Hebrews tells us that Cain didn't have faith. So what do we see? What is Cain's religion? Cain's religion is the religion of going through the motions. 
I'm going to go ahead and put on the holy pretense. You want to sacrifice God? Fine, I'll bring you a sacrifice. No problemo. Here's a salad, Jesus. And he has no faith at all. But he goes through the religious motions. You think a sacrifice meant anything to Christ? Nothing at all. Because he had no faith. And see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not difficult. It's impossible. So Cain brings his faithless sacrifice. And Abel's is received. God looked with favor on Abel and his sacrifice, and he did not look with favor at all on Cain. But see, Cain still exists. The Cainites. There might even be some here right now. You never know. But see, they go through all the religious motion. But you know what they hate? They hate Jesus. And they hate that Jesus forgives miserable sinners. They can't stand the idea that prostitutes, that deadbeat dads, they can't stand the idea that those who are getting what they deserve in this life through being racked with pain and broken bodies because they are getting what they deserve because they're sinners. That Jesus is coming and forgiving them, setting them free, making them whole. Oh, even worse. Are you ready? Making them on the same level then as us. We who busted our butts, brought all the sacrifices, tied all the way down to the mint in our gardens. And what does he do? He makes them equal with us. Cain, like his father the devil, was a murderer. And what is slander? I'll tell you what slander is. Slander is the sin that somebody cowardly commits when they want to murder somebody, but they don't have the guts to get a gun or a knife. So I'm going to murder your name. I'm going to take your name and nobody will listen to you. Everybody will think you're a plague and a scourge. And I'm going to just make up stuff about you. That's what they did with Jesus. And they still do it to those who preach the gospel today. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of this lecture, Roseboro's Ramblings on Psalm 69 in a precatory psalm. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) 
Holidays, Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions. They're just so boring. Hey, do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Los Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the Biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. 
Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never preaches God's Word in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our four friendly yellow buttons, or three, actually. Three! Yeah, three, sir. Three three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly contribution. And the lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to support us by becoming a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture on the imprecatory psalm, Psalm 69. Here we go. Jesus in John 8 says this, starting at verse 34. Amen, amen. Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is not your friend, it's an enemy. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Oh, and the self-righteous lukewarm hear this and they are not happy. I know that you are 
Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my words, they find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. So they answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And listen to these words. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. You know that when Jesus said these words, he actually revealed the motivation for what took place in the Garden of Eden. And the words from the beginning, very important words, because the Hebrew Bible itself begins with these words, Bereshit bara Elohim, Ba'eth Shemayim, Ba'eth Eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel, Enarche and Halagas, Kai Halagas and Postontheon, Katheos and Halagas. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And so Jesus, by saying that the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, that word beginning is referring all the way back to the opening chapters of Genesis. And now we see it. Why did the devil do what he did? Why were we plunged into this misery? Answer. Humans were created in the image of God. Satan hates God, wants to murder God. That's why he couldn't resist to kill Jesus on the cross. But there in the Garden of Eden are the two human beings that God made in his image. Here's the goal. He heard the word that the Lord spoke to Adam. The day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Perfect. The perfect crime. So Satan comes in and deceives them. They eat of the tree. God never lies. God will have to put them to death. It's a murderer. And the instrument of the crime is God himself. That's how sick the devil is. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar. And he's the father of lies. And there it is. Two commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Two of the commandments specifically against lying. And those who lie while claiming allegiance to God, 
who slander God and slander his servants, slander God or slander their neighbors. They are speaking parcel mouth. The satanic tongue. The truth cannot be in them. Luther, in the large catechism, writing on the commandment, the eighth says, Besides our own body, a wife or a husband, our temporal property, we have one more treasure which is indispensable to us, namely our honor and good name. For it is intolerable to live among men in public disgrace and contempt. Therefore, God will not have our neighbor deprived of his reputation or honor or character any more than of his money and possessions. And he would have every man maintain his self-respect before his wife, children, servants, and neighbors. And so to avoid this vice, therefore, we should note that nobody has the right to judge and reprove his neighbor publicly, even when he has seen a sin committed, unless he has been authorized to judge and to reprove. There is a great difference between judging sin and having a knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin does not entail the right to judge it. I may see and hear that my neighbor sins, but to make him the talk of the town is not my business. If I interfere and pass sentence on him, I fall into a greater sin than his. And when you become aware of a sin, simply take, make your ears a tomb. Bury it until you are appointed a judge, and then you are authorized to administer punishment by virtue of your office. Those are called backbiters who are not content just to know, but rush ahead and judge. Learning a bit of gossip about someone else, they spread it into every corner, relishing and delighting in it like pigs that roll in the mud and root around in it with their snouts. Children of the devil, speaking the language of Mordor. That's what lies are. Either lies about God or lies about your neighbor. And yet, it is our privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ as Christians. And part of that requires us to bear up and to have our names slandered for the sake of Christ. So few recognize that to be literally the glorious thing that it is. Consider Christ's suffering in John 11. It says this in verse 44. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went into the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and they said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. To which I keep reading in this text and saying, how is that a bad thing? He just raised a man from the dead. I know I'm going to die. I could use that myself. Seems ultimately relevant. But if we let him go on, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you, you don't know anything, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, 
not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into the children of God those who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Which kind of begs the question, how do you take the only sinless human being, a person who's never lied, never stolen, never committed a sin, and how is it that you are then able to put him to death without you being guilty of murder? Because that's kind of the tricky part of all of this, right? How do you bring charges against an innocent man? When we read in Matthew 26, the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Consider the irony of the statement. Chief priests and the council of the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, they were seeking false testimony. Is there anyone here who would like to raise your hand? We'll give you some money. We need you to lie about Jesus. Would you be willing to do that? And that's the chief priest. Do you see it? This is Cain. This guy's a half Christian. He's lukewarm. He thinks he's wealthy and he doesn't need Jesus. But he's wretched, poor, pitiable, blind. Kangaroo trial is filled with nothing but lies. And even then, they couldn't get the liars to agree with each other. Again, Paul's words in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Psalm 69, then, this little excursus, we can see it. Psalm 69 is about participating in the sufferings of Christ when our names are being slandered and we're being lied about in the same ways that Jesus was being lied about. They hated him. Trust me, they're going to hate you. And if the world loves you, you had better take a step back and say, something's wrong here. Why is the world so happy about me? So Psalm 69, verse 9, watch the gospel elements then. We can see that this is a messianic psalm. For zeal for your house has consumed me. John quotes this verse regarding Christ when Christ drove the money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you, they've fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your, and here's the gospel, your steadfast love, Answer me in your saving faithfulness. You see, this psalmist knows of the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. This psalmist knows that it is the glory of God that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and pardoning iniquity. 
So as for me, he's going to abide in the steadfast love of God. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Hmm. That sounds like Jesus' burial, doesn't it? Makes you wonder. The six hours that Christ was on the cross, at some point these words were not being engraved in his mind. You see, because it looked like the deeps swallowed him up, the pit did close its mouth over Jesus' tomb. They rolled a really large stone over it. But God himself, God the Father, delivered Christ from his enemies and they didn't get the last say. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. Notice, this guy knows the gospel. His enemies hate it. Years ago, the apologist Walter Martin used to tell a story about an old Nazarene preacher who would tell him if you would, if somebody doesn't want to hear the gospel, you give them Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and they don't want to have anything to do with it, you leave them with Moses then. Interesting way of talking. And I kind of think there's some wisdom to it. And that's kind of the idea here. What do you do with enemies who you keep calling to repent? Be forgiven. Wake up. You're not rich in good works. You're not righteous. You are absolutely naked and wretched and dead. Wake up, repent. Christ will forgive you. And their answer to that is, you are demon-possessed. You are evil. We're going to lie and slander your name. Persist in that constant unbelief. Harden your heart against the gospel. What hope is there for you? Your self-righteousness will not save you. Do you think your mud-stained good works are going to be applauded by Christ and Him say, yep, you earned your way into heaven, all right. That's some good stuff right there. No. So you'll notice the psalmist knows, knows the gospel, and that's why he's under reproach. Answer me, O Lord. Your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant. I'm in distress. Make haste, O Lord, to deliver me, to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. And yet, we recognize this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Even those who are against us are doing the work of the devil and ultimately our enemies are the devil and his demons. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. I'm in despair. I looked for pity. There was none for comforters. And I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And then you realize, oh my goodness. This psalm has been talking about Jesus' crucifixion the whole time. And that's the key. So let their table before them become a snare. 
they don't want to be forgiven, then let them know God's justice. They don't want Christ and his blood, then let Moses be their judge. When they are at peace, let them become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. Make their loins tremble continually. I'd like to see that. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. This is describing the ultimate fate of those who persist in lukewarm, half-Christianity, self-righteous, who think that they can stand on their own two feet and refuse to be forgiven. The thing they get to look forward to is not mercy, but wrath. They persecuted him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. That's hell. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain and let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please Yahweh more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. For you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. And here, across the pages of Scripture, in this brutal prayer, raw in all of its emotions, comfort is held out for us that even in the midst of our afflictions as we share in the sufferings of Christ, as we confess our need for Jesus, our need for our next breath from Him, our need for His mercy and forgiveness, our need for Him to help us and sustain us in the midst of our persecutions, know this, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. So let the heavens and the earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them, For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and the people shall dwell there and possess it and the offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And isn't it so appropriate that after reflecting on and foreshadowing the crucifixion of Christ that we all see the ultimate end in all of this. The day when all of our sufferings will make sense promise the new earth in a world without end after the marriage feast of the lamb we will live forever in the cities that christ is building and we will dwell there forever vindicated against the enemies of god because of his great mercy not because of our righteousness in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.